Last week, we covered the disappearance of four women all around the same age with the same look from the same area in Ireland. Tonight, the stories of four more women missing under the same circumstances will be told. Is Ireland being preyed upon by a serial killer? Find out as I finish up the story of Ireland's vanishing triangle. Ooh, sounds good. In 1962, a postal truck set out from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, en route to the Federal Reserve Bank in Boston. The cargo? $1.5 million in small bills. While the truck did have a guard on board, the truck wasn't armored and was carrying a very large sum of money for the time. What could possibly go wrong? Well, I'm about to tell you as I break down the Great Plymouth Mail Truck Robbery. From time to time, during the How Did We Miss That podcast, we may talk about details of crimes that some may find triggering or disturbing. Listener discretion is highly advised. We miss that. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Welcome back to another week of How Did We Miss That? I'm Christine. And I'm John. Nice to see you. That's good to see you. Not like I don't see you every day all the time, but. I know, right? Hey. It's kind of cool know. to see you across the microphone. Yeah, we spend a little more time apart these days with work and whatnot. It's not yeah. like last year when we started this deal. I know. All right. Well, I'm going to finish up my story tonight about Ireland's Vanishing Triangle, like I said, with four more women. My sources for tonight's story are a YouTube video by Georgia Marie. I've used her before. She's awesome. I love listening to her really awesome accent. Mm -hmm. Check her out on YouTube. A DidYouKnowFacts.com article by Matt Gilligan and an article from the Daily Mail from May of 2021 by Monica Greep. I love it. So we ended up, I told you, four women missing... So let's just jump right back in, okay? Jumping in. Jumping in. So we left the story in 1996 with the disappearance of Jojo Duller. Do you remember that? I do. Okay. So we've now moved into August of 1997, the 23rd to be exact, and 25-year-old Fiona Pender has gone missing. Fiona was a model and a hairdresser. She was actually seven months pregnant at the time of her disappearance, which is why she had just spent a lovely afternoon shopping for baby things with her mother. She was really excited about the baby coming and starting a family. Now, I know that you can't exactly relate to this, but being seven months pregnant is definitely not easy. Especially in August. Is it hot there in August? I mean, I would assume. Yeah. I would assume it's pretty similar to here. We're not that far away. Does it even matter? I mean, seven months pregnant, you're yeah. almost there. It's uh, Right? Oof. It, it's not... Not fun. It's no. really hard to get up, to sit down. <laughs> Do all the things. You can't sleep. Yeah. It's, you can't even walk around without your feet swelling like crazy and having everything hurt. It's uncomfortable, right? So it is. Yeah. Yes, extremely. So there was, this obviously was not an exception for Fiona. She's not some superwoman, right? Which is why her family immediately knew that something was wrong when they could not get a hold of her after this day of shopping. She had last been seen at her apartment by her boyfriend, the father of the baby. However, he had gone to see his family that afternoon and decided to stay the night, 
So he had no idea that she was missing. So here we go. More shenanigans with the Garda, like how I did that one. Shenanigans. Yeah, that's good. Thanks. Even though Fiona was reported missing the next day, it took police five days to begin looking for information regarding her disappearance. One man that lived in the apartment building where Fiona and her boyfriend lived said that the night she went missing, he saw two men carrying something that looked like a rolled up carpet out of the building (laughs) into a trunk and then just driving away. Perfectly normal. Totally normal. Yeah, no big deal. I mean, I I like to redecorate at night. I mean, it makes sense to me. Yeah. And I always roll up my carpet with duct tape and have two guys carry it. Yeah. Well, hey, you know? Yeah. So with no more information than that, this lead quickly went cold. Despite not having much information to go on, the police still had a suspect in mind. They believed it to be someone who was close to the Pender family. So in April of 1997, they arrested and interviewed two men and three women. But this never led to anything substantial. In 2008, a cross was found with her name on it on a mountain trail. Also, in 2014, a huge lead came that made it seem like this case might actually be solved. A Canadian woman had gone to the police with a story that her husband had violently sexually attacked her. She also mentioned that on a few occasions, he had mentioned that he had killed Fiona and that she would be next. She was able to pinpoint an exact location of where she believed Fiona was buried because she said her husband had taken her there 10 years earlier and told her. Wouldn't you know it, it was actually in those same mountains where the cross was found. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. There was also a report on the night of Fiona's disappearance by a man who said he was almost run off the road by a vehicle that was going way too fast up the mountain road in the same direction of where the body was believed to be buried. Mm, This does sound promising. Yes. Yeah. So they began digging in the general area of where she believed it to be, but not even the smallest piece of evidence was ever found, leading the police to believe that maybe the woman had been lied to. Mm -hmm. The case is still cold to this day. Oh, my. So next, we have the youngest of the women to disappear. This is 17-year-old Kira Breen. Kira went missing on February 13th, 1997. She was last seen by her mother, who said that around midnight she had gone to bed. Then at about 2 a.m., she got up to go to the bathroom and she saw that Kira was gone. She noticed that the latch on her window had been left open and she thinks it was because she needed to be let back in without letting anyone know that she had snuck out of the house. So that's, she believes she left to go somewhere or meet someone, but we don't know who or where. Did you ever sneak out of the house as a kid? All the time. Through the window? Really? Mm Mm-hmm. I was not expecting that answer. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's a, I always see it as like a movie or TV show theme, but it never even crossed my mind. And I guess I had nowhere to go. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I did. I stuck out. All right. Good I for you. I went like out the garage and out the side door. Yeah. And I just come back in into the garage. It got a little harder when they got the Simply Safe thing that every time I opened the door, it'd go bing, bing. Yeah. Got a little harder. Where did you uh, end up going? That's oh, a different time for <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, carry on. At least, time for that. <laughs> at least you didn't get murdered or taken like these no, ladies. No, I yeah. apparently did not learn from all of the cases that no, I No, you did not. Heard about. All right. Well, unlike the other cases, though, there has always been a very strong suspect in Kira's case. Liam Mullen has been arrested twice, but was never charged and ended up dying of an overdose at the age of 55 while in police custody. How does that happen? How do you die of an overdose while you're in jail? I think that people can get done. There's like a whole underground. People sneak it in. They shove it in their butt when someone comes to visit. Jeez. Oh, yeah. It's a big deal. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. 
All right, well, that was in 2017. It turns out that at the time of her disappearance, Liam lived just yards away from Kira. In fact, her friend said that he would come up to them to talk to them every now and then, and they actually heard her making arrangements to meet up with him that night. So just remember, at this point in time, so if he died when he was 55 years old in 2017, when Kira was taken or disappeared, he was 35. So he's Mm. a creeper going up to like 17-year-old kids. Yeah. Gross. Anyway. Though he maintains that it is completely false. In 2014, after another public appeal for information went out and two significant leads came forward, two people claimed they had seen Kira in an area that is basically full of like marshland on that night, as well as two anonymous letters that were sent to the police basically saying the same thing. So in 2015, they searched the area, but came up with nothing. So it turns out actually that in the last five years, a bunch of like rubble had been dumped into the marshland. I'm not really sure why. I don't know if they're trying to like cover it up a little bit to have more usable land. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I mean, any evidence that possibly would have been there is underneath a bunch of rubble now. Yeah. So I I don't know what they were expecting to find. Mm, That's interesting. I wonder what they were doing. Right. So even though they had some strong evidence against him, they just couldn't make a a case against him because as we've heard many times before, they don't have a body. They ain't got no body. Nope. Can't make a case when you don't got a body. Nope. All right. Well, the next woman to go missing was 19-year-old Fiona Sinnott. Another Fiona. Another Fiona. Popular Mm -hmm. Irish name, huh? Yes. You can wait till you hear the the last one. (laughs) I can't wait. She she went missing on February 8th of 1998. She was last seen leaving a pub with her ex-boyfriend, who was also the father of her 11-month-old baby girl. Sean Carroll had walked Fiona. Fiona. Excuse me. Fiona. Fiona. (laughs) He'd walked Fiona home that night because she was complaining of pains in her arms and upper body. He decided to stay the night on her couch, and Fiona had gone straight to bed. The next morning, Sean went to check on her. She was awake, and she told him that she was going to try to hitch a ride to her doctor's office. How many times have we said? Don't hitch a ride. Don't hitch rides. No. Don't do it. Anyway. Wasn't Uber a thing by now? Can't you hitch a... 1998? Oh, no. I'm sorry. Okay. Never mind. (laughs) No. No. Hitching a ride. Hitching a ride. How about a taxi? Well, here, here comes the reason why. Okay. She didn't have any money. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And all Sean had on him was three pounds. Mm. So that's what he gave her. And then he went outside to meet his mom who was there to pick him up. Isn't that cute? Mommy's coming to pick you up. That is cute. That's nice. Yeah. They drove back to their home where actually their daughter was because she was being babysat by his parents that night. Now in a complete twist, it was not the Gardai's fault this time, but no one noticed that Fiona was even missing until 10 days later. 10 days. Yeah. Oh my God. What is wrong with these people? It was quite common for Fiona to not talk to people for days, I guess. Okay. She was like a super, super independent teenager. I mean, she's only 19, but she's got 11 month old already. She's living in her own rented apartment. Yeah. You know, with her baby. She's, I mean, she's got her own life, her own thing going on. Mm -hmm. So I guess it just didn't occur. Was normal. Yeah. Her family usually had dinner together on Fridays, but when she didn't show up for the second Friday in a row, they started to worry. Hmm. So what's really confusing to me is that her daughter was still at Sean's parents' house. Like, did they ever call to find out when she was going to pick her up? Well, I, we, <laughs> we watch a lot of teen mom, 19-year-old mother. Who knows? Maybe they are used to her being irresponsible and 
Well, it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like she really, really cared about her daughter. Like hmm. she was her whole world. But I'm just thinking, like, was this normal? Something sounds how a little do, fishy here. How do I get that? How do I drop my kids off for 10 days and have nobody bother me about that? Yeah, have nobody even bother looking for you. Like, you could completely this go off amazing. grid. Yeah. How anyway. do we sign up for this? Seriously. Well, during the initial investigation, police found that Fiona had not visited any doctor's offices nearby, nor did any witnesses see her hitching a ride anywhere that day. When they investigated her home, they actually found something really strange. All of her personal belongings were gone. Clothing, anything that basically indicated that anyone in particular actually lived in that apartment. Now, I was a teenage girl once, and I've had two 11-month-old children at one point. Stuff is everywhere. Yeah. Like, you can't hide that a teenager or 11-month-old children live in a home. Right. You just can't. Right. So, that's just weird. Well, wouldn't you know it? As news of her disappearance became more public, a local farmer came into the police station to tell them that he had found a bunch of black trash bags in one of his fields with... Want to take a guess what was in them? Well, wouldn't you know it, as news of her disappearance became more public, a local farmer came into the police station to tell them that he had found a bunch of black trash bags in one of his fields with... Want to take a guess what was in them? Rubbish. Well... Body parts? Toes, fingers, teeth. No. Personal belongings from the 19-year-old's apartment. There you go. Bing, bing, bing. Bing, you got it. I did it. Fiona's clothes and documents with her name on them. Unfortunately, he thought this was just a bunch of kids dumping their trash. I guess that happened a lot. So he burned them. Like you do. Well, I mean, if it happens a lot, people who are dumping trash in my field, I guess I'd probably do the same thing. Yeah, I guess. So now police are pretty sure that someone is trying to get them to believe that Fiona had actually run away. Mm -hmm. Trying to do like a little red herring or something going on. Yeah. But everyone knew that she would have never have left her daughter. Seven years later in 2005, Fiona was legally declared dead. Lots of leads were followed and many people were questioned, but nothing ever came of it and no charges were ever filed. How do you legally become dead? They just can't find you? I think you they, yeah. Gone I think after a, a certain point in time, they have to assume if no one has seen you, you're not using bank accounts, you're not attempting to contact anyone. I think they, you can go through the court system to get someone legally declared hmm. dead. So she could be living down the street under the name of Susie Jones. Who knows? I mean, I guess, but I She could have done a full identity change. She loved her daughter so much, I don't think she would have just left her like that. Yeah. So the last disappearance is that of 18-year-old Deirdre Jacob. She went missing on July 28th of 1998. She was studying to be a teacher at St. Mary's College in London, but she was home for the summer. Deirdre Deirdre. Jacob. I was you you set me up for some like great I was expecting like spicy McHaggis or something. Oh no. Some Deirdre kind of super like Irish name. Irish name I can think of. It is? Oh yeah. Okay. Anyway. Well the most <laughs> puzzling part of this disappearance is that many witnesses passed by her as she was literally yards away from her parents' driveway. She never made it home. She had spent the day with her grandmother doing some shopping and to tie all of these stories together. Mm-hmm. In some sort of like full circle, if you will. Yeah. Just like our first missing person, Annie McCarrick, all of her activities for the day were captured on security cameras. Mm -hmm. When she was finished, she walked down the road that she had walked down many, many times before. 
During the 10-minute walk from the bank, which was the last confirmed surveillance sighting, eight people saw her, six of which knew her personally. Hmm. Neighbors actually saw her getting within 200 yards of her house, but then she just vanished. Poof. Gone. Yeah. She was carrying this black satchel that had, so you know the um, tractor company, Cat? I do. So it, was, it had that logo on it, big and huge, yellow mm-hmm. logo. Yeah. So it's like really distinctive. Yeah, so black people, and yellow. Yeah, people remember seeing her with that bag, but her or the bag have never been found again. Now, in 2018, police reclassified this case as a murder investigation because of new information that they believe to have found. They said that they are very close to closing this case, stating that it is in an advanced stage, whatever that means. Mm. I don't know what that means. Yeah. They finally named a man as their person of interest. Yeah. Larry Murphy. Oh, now that's Irish. Yeah. 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 Are you ready for this one? I am. Buckle up. It's about to get really interesting. Click. Buckled. Let's do it. Larry was once a suspect in a case very close to this one. The Jojo Dullard disappearance. He was questioned, but ultimately ruled out. But wait. There's more. There's more. In 2000, he was caught attempting to kidnap and strangle another woman in the exact same location that Annie McCarrick was walking when she disappeared. Uh-oh. Yeah. He also matches the description of the man Annie was seen with that night. Hmm. He lived very close to where Jojo Dullard lived, and he knew Deirdre's grandmother because he had done some construction work for her in the past. Mm-hmm. Also... He traveled this area a lot for work, so he kind of knew the area. He knew yeah. where to go, where familiar. to find people. He was yeah. familiar with it. Mm-hmm. So he actually spent 10 years in prison for the attempted kidnapping and strangulation of someone. And wouldn't you know it, the vanishing stopped while he was in prison. Hmm. hmm. Curious. During a prison house confession, he boastfully told others that he had kidnapped a girl by asking her for directions. Mm. When she leaned into the car to see what he was pointing at, he grabbed her hair and forced her into the passenger seat. Investigators believe this to be a very strong confession. And in March of 2020, they submitted their case against him. So I guess in Europe, you have to, you have like a case to say we want to arrest this person. Mm-hmm. I guess you have to have a whole thing. Yeah. Anyway, because of COVID, the proceedings have slowed down course but i'm definitely going to be keeping my eye out for any information as the Mm -hmm. case unfolds i like it so as in the case of the killing fields that we covered a few episodes ago there's potential for a lot of bodies to be buried in this small stretch of land yeah how has no one come across a body yet it's such a small little area you'd think walking around or farmers or someone it's crazy. eight women just like literally vanished without a trace yeah well maybe he'd Put them in the meat grinder or acid or something. Who knows? I don't know. Well, for the time being, all these cases are cold. It was originally believed that these women fell victim to a serial killer. But now we know that Murphy is probably responsible for at least three. And the other five have strong individual suspects tied to them. So the people in this area can be assured that there's no serial killer loose. But I still think they should be vigilant. You know, if it was a serial killer, I bet it would be Lucky Charms cereal. That's funny. Yeah, that's good, good one. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like now more than ever, based on your story, we need some uh, dramatic sound effects like are in the movies. Yeah, that would be good for that episode for I sure. I might have to try and find some of those. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
All right. Are you ready? I'm going to talk about the Great Plymouth Mail Truck Robbery. Okay. My sources are onlyinyourstate.com, my favorite website. Right. Wikipedia. Medium.com. I get a lot of good stuff from that website. <clears throat> I know. I thought about that when I saw it. I'm like, I'm on your level. Um, it's an article from March 2021 and a website called postalmuseum.si.edu. Oh, wow. Only like stamp collectors and dorks go there, I bet. And me. And you. Yeah. So um, that's it. So again, it's the Great Plymouth Mail Truck Robbery. Dramatic name, huh? Mm-hmm. Sounds very it like... It sounds like a, like a caper it is, is about to take huh. place. Appropriate because all this took place originating on Cape Cod. Oh, well, look at that. Yeah. So I, this I'm is a. Uh, people like in Hamburglar outfits. <laughs> not quite. Better than that. This is a local story. I'm kind of on a local kick lately. I enjoy doing these New England y kind of things. This robbery still remains one of the biggest cash heists in history and remains unsolved to this day. Oh, man. Can you believe that? Like the paintings. Do we just have a really bad police force out here or something? Yeah. And I just want to take a quick sidebar real quick to say that, and I've said this before, I'm absolutely amazed at just how much stuff out there I've missed in the course of my life. Right. I mean, obviously you can't possibly know or hear about every crime or thing that happens out there. But as we've been doing this show, I've really realized just how much I've missed when it comes to all this stuff. You know, it's crazy. Mm. I know. That's why I like this show. That's why I did it. Anyway, this story is super intriguing to me for a myriad of reasons, but the one that stands out right away is that this much money was being transported in a mail truck. Like just a regular mail truck? $1.5 million Do we know what, in year, what year was this? A mail truck. 1962. Oh, all right. I mean, what's going on here, right? Why not an armored car? Why not with a police escort at least? Well, how about this? If we packed our truck full of $1.5 million... I know what you're going to say. Don't bury the lead. We're going to get to that. Okay. Hiding in plain sight? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Well, that's exactly what they were do, but I still what they were doing, but I still really don't get all this. And it makes me wonder if this was common practice. So I started thinking about that same thing. Is this like a hiding in plain sight type of scenario? It turns out that it is. Because who would think that, you know, there's millions of dollars just cruising in a mail truck? Right, exactly. Probably, I wouldn't think like, hey, let's knock up that mail truck. Yeah, they're probably one of the most unsecure vehicles on the road. I mean, they have the big door hanging out <laughs> and just usually some guy or gal in shorts, you and know, dropping the mail. Just like a little door on the back. <laughs> yeah, no, no locks, no nothing. Which is still a little disturbing because the mail is in there. <laughs> the mail is like a big deal. That's true. <laughs> you know, is it? I, at least I thought it was. I mean, some people get checks in the mail. Yeah. From well, your, From your grandma. On August 14th, 1962, four unidentified assailants likely had some inside information and seized the truck on its way to Boston. They must have, though. We'll get into that. (laughs) After making its rounds to collect money from smaller branch post offices around the Cape, that's local speak for Cape Cod, in case any of our listeners don't know that, Mm -hmm. the truck set out on a pleasant summer's journey that should have been pretty straightforward. You see, this trip had been made on other occasions without incident. However, on this night, the truck would never reach its final destination. Instead, it would become part of a decades-long cold case and what would be then the then largest cash heist in U.S. history. Wow. That's surprising to me. That is really surprising. But I guess there wasn't tons of money floating around prior to that time frame, I guess. Doesn't sound like a ton of money these days at $1.5 million, but adjusted for inflation, 
1962, that equates to about $13 million today. Oh, my. So, that's a a lot of money. It was around 8 p.m. when Patrick Shenna, the truck's driver, and his guard, William Barrett, were making their way along Route 3. That's the highway that links the Cape to the rest of Massachusetts and eventually Boston. We've driven that. Mm -hmm. Just this past weekend, we drove that. The men were carrying surplus cash, registered mail, and receipts from the aforementioned Cape Cod Postal Branches. The trip was pretty routine until they reached the historic town of Plymouth, again for our international friends and people who slept through history class here in the States. Plymouth is where the rock is. Like Dwayne? (laughs) Johnson? No. (laughs) I mean, I wonder if he's ever been there. The rock next to the rock would be amazing Instagram post. Epic. No, this is where the Mayflower landed and the first settlers landed back in 1620. Plymouth Rock. Got it. Yeah. Plymouth Pebble. It's kind of a big deal around these parts, but like you said, it's more of a pebble than a rock. It's very small. Anyway, as the men pulled into the town, Barrett spotted a police officer up ahead flagging them down. Shenna followed instructions like a good little employee and stopped, believing that there may have been an accident or some other police action up ahead. What happened next, however, caught the men by complete surprise. Two cars from out of view on the sides of the road jutted out quickly and blocked the truck in from moving. Four men immediately jumped from the cars and approached the truck. Sounds like a movie, right? Yeah. Two of the men pointed what looked like submachine guns through the truck's windows and ordered Barrett and Shenna out of the driver's compartment and into the back. This is all per Barrett's account. And this is in quotes. They told us to keep quiet as they tied us up. We just sat there. Strangely enough, they weren't wearing masks, but we couldn't see their faces very well. I don't really get that. Yeah, I don't know what that means. If they were like shielding themselves with their arms, looking down, or maybe he was just in shock and scared and didn't notice their faces. I mean, who knows? But I don't, it doesn't go into any more information in any of my sources as to why he couldn't give a good description of their face. Hmm. I have an idea. Well, let's hear it. Maybe he was in on it. Maybe. He's never mentioned as a suspect, though. Hmm. Interesting, right? Barrett continued with his information during an interview with the Fitchburg Sentinel, which is a newspaper, adding that the hijackers made use of highway detour signs to stop traffic and make it easier for them to get away from the scene of the crime without drawing suspicion from passersby. He also stated that the truck made several stops to drop off the stolen money before they reached the town of Randolph, some 25 miles away. Okay. I think I forgot to mention that the criminals were dressed as police officers. Oh. Sound familiar? Yeah. I wonder if this was... the same people. Well, either that or I wonder if this was like a a case study for the other people because that Mm. happened in the 90s. So maybe they looked back on their mafia history. Maybe it was like the family biz. Maybe. Once in Randolph, the truck was abandoned and Barrett and Shenna were set free on Route 128. We've also been on that road. The money was gone, dispersed across several locations over roughly 25 miles, and the assailants were gone without a trace except for what the two men could recall from the whole situation. Pretty crazy, right? Yeah. So, I don't, I'm sorry, it took me a long time to answer because I'm trying to compute this in my head. Mm Mm-hmm. So they stopped and dropped off money in several places? Yes. Like to go back and get it later or because people were waiting for it? Don't know. That's so weird. Okay. I'm telling you, the more I research this, it's. I think it has a lot to do with the art heist from Isabella Stewart Gardner. Mm. I'd like to point out once again that the bad guys were posing as police, 
what is it with this state and criminals dressing as cops? Very Why strange. Why is it so easy to get a uniform that looks like the police? Exactly. And, you know, like I said, maybe this was the inspiration for the art heist, or maybe, like you said, they're connected somehow. We'll get into something a little later that might show that they are connected. So that's the incident. That's pretty much it. That's how it all went down pretty quick. Yeah. Now let's get into a, um, a little bit about the investigation and what happened after the fact. Naturally, the robbery made headline news the next day, as it would. At first, as this was a case with a lot of things like this back then, no one knew for sure just how much money had been stolen. So everyone's speculating. The press is saying absurd amounts like it could equal $42 million. Oh, wow. For some reason, nobody had a documented accounting of what was in there and what was missing. Why? I just, I'm confused why a mail truck even has money to begin with. Well, I told you they were going around to the different smaller post office branches and post offices collect money. Oh, okay. There was also so mention just, of them okay. also transporting some banks money, but I couldn't find anything that corroborated that across the stories, So mm. I left that out. So okay. unclear where all the money came from, but it was primarily from the other bank Got branches it. along the Cape. Anyway, like I said earlier, that's a ton of money that I highly doubt would have been transported in a mail truck. So I think the $42 million is far-fetched, right? I mean... Yeah, I think that's a little out. That would have uh, been armored transport. Well, and then, I mean, how many post offices have, get $42 million? Right, and, right. Exactly. And was that like over the course of their entire life as Existence, a post office? Yeah. <laughs> Since the Pony Express? Well, the details only got sketchier from there with Barrett telling reporters that there were four robbers, but authorities later suggesting that there could have been up to seven. Oh, maybe the people like along the way? Yeah, so just like... Uh, Many of these crimes that go cold and are unsolved, they're unsolved for a reason because we have no damn details. We have no evidence. Right. We got nothing. So there's lots of speculation going on here. I think this was Danny Ocean again. Maybe. Remember how I mentioned earlier that it was odd that this sum of money wouldn't be transported via armored car? Mm-hmm. Well, officials were sure to report right away that money from postal branches used to be moved by armored car. However, of course, just three weeks prior to this heist, Central Cape Banks began a new system that involved using the post office and simple trucks. Mm -mm. I've heard of the hiding in plain sight concept before, such as malls and other businesses moving money around like in a shopping bag so as to not draw attention to it. It makes sense, but all it takes is for one person to find out that that's your tactic and you're screwed. You have no way to defend yourself. In this case, the lack of armored transport made this like a super easy job. I don't like your tactics. (laughs) All right, moving on. Post Office Department Representative William Gullett, maybe Goulet, I don't know, (laughs) who would have been on the truck that night had he not been a slacker and took a vacation. Way to go, Bill. Gotta have a vacation right now. Yeah. He noted to the press that he thought one of the robbers could have had inside information, you think? Well, yeah. Somehow someone must have known that the truck carried as much as $2 million at any given time. That's great, but for this investigative-minded podcaster, there are way too many variables to just get lucky with here without knowing yeah, some kind of inside too information. Much of, yeah, that's too much of a coincidence. Right. Like, knowing the route. Yeah. Knowing the money's in there at that particular time, because it's not like it was a consistent thing. Something seems quite fishy here, if you ask me. Based on eyewitnesses and police investigative work, authorities eventually sounded the alarm with an all-points bulletin or an APB. Did you know that that's what that meant? I did. For five men and one woman who they believed were involved in the heist, the woman was thought to be 
one of the people who stopped traffic so that the robbery could take place undisturbed about four miles further up the road. So she stopped and diverted traffic so this could just happen on its own without cars passing by. Crazy. It was Catherine (laughs) Zeta-Jones. You're really stuck on this ocean thing. I aren't am. You? It, it it seems like that, like a group of guys got together and you're going to do this and you're going to do that. Very high. Do the cameras and you're going to do the Brad Pitt Billy walking Bob. around eating the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Very strange. As for the five men, police only had the potential names of Tony and Buster to go off of <laughs> and pretty much nothing else. Tony and Buster. Tony and Buster. Despite the lack of evidence um, and leads in this case, I mean, extreme lack of evidence and information, the feds promised its entire 1,000-person strong force of postal inspectors to come to Massachusetts to work on the case if need be. Quick side note, did you know that the post office has like their own branch of law enforcement? I mean, no. I would assume they've got something, though. Well, they do. Postal inspectors are gun-toting officers that deal with postally-type crimes and incidents. Carry a badge and everything. Pretty cool, right? So next time you uh, next time you make sure you put the right amount of stamps on your next letter, or you just might get met by gunpoint by Inspector Steve Stamp saying, "Hand it over." Steve Stamp. Steve Stamp. That's a that's the best I could come up with. Coincidence of a name. Strange, right? I mean, I guess if your last name's Stamp, you have to work in the post office. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, even though the entire department was promised, only Chief Postal Inspector Henry Montague responded to the scene to work the case. Get this, he had a 99% conviction rate when it came to crimes involving the mail, and he flew straight to Boston to take immediate command of the situation. Well, Hank, I guess this falls into that 1% where you failed because the case still remains unsolved. Man. Sorry, buddy, I had to go there. It was initially thought that the heist could have been the work of notorious bank robbers Albert Nussbaum, Baum, Nussbaum, Nussbaum, I don't know, and Bobby Wilcoxon. Two of the FBI's 10 most wanted criminals at the time. Jeez. Two the, of the 10, huh? Yeah. It's 20%. Whoa. <laughs> Look at you, math wizard. The Desert Sun, another newspaper, reported on August 15th that authorities believed the method of operation was similar in the Plymouth case to that used by the two men, and both had allegedly been seen in the region. Sounds pretty promising. Indeed, the two had robbed a number of banks at gunpoint starting from 1960, and their cash did include submachine guns. However, they were later captured and convicted of their crimes, with no further mention of any potential connection to the Great Plymouth mail truck robbery. Mm. Who knows? So the case goes cold and authorities start to grow desperate. Almost five years passed, and despite extensive efforts throughout New England, neither the FBI nor the United States Postal Inspection Service was able to make any further headway in the case, They even offered huge rewards of $150,000 plus $50,000 from the Postmaster General for information leading to a conviction. They even said that any suspects killed during this pursuit would be deemed convicted as regards to the reward. Oh. So they were quite desperate. Unsurprisingly, this led to kind of a near hysteria type atmosphere at first. People were calling out all kinds of tips and leads like they often do. But as the weeks and months passed, this eventually tapered off. In what looked like desperation as the five-year deadline for the statute of limitations approached, the authorities indicted four men and one woman woman, in front of a federal grand jury for the crime. Here's where it gets interesting and connected to the museum heist. Are okay. you ready? In, yeah. my, in my opinion, anyway. Ready. I'm going to try to butcher through this, okay? 
The suspects were John Red Jack Kelly. It's a nickname. Okay. I was going to say, well, it's a weird name. George W. Aggie nickname. Agistellis. Joseph C. Tripoli. Are you noticing a theme here with the names? They're very Italian. Thomas R. Richards and Patricia Diaferio. The investigation homed in on Richards, Kelly, and Diaferio in particular, and they were released on bail pending a thorough investigation. U.S. Marshals searched their houses, and in Kelly's, they discovered $350 in cash. That's almost $3,000 in today's money. Okay. Bulletproof vests and a 45 caliber firearm. Okay. Kelly was no stranger to crime and was known to work for a Boston family from the organized crime scene. Oh, a family, Mm -hmm. huh? Yeah. Just when the case was about to go to trial, and it looked like the authorities might be getting somewhere, Richards suddenly disappeared on his way to work as an electrician. Oh, man. He had been expected to appear as the prosecutor's witness, but would have meant testifying against the other suspects. Many Mm. people believe he was killed to prevent him from implicating the others. Well, yeah, duh. After that, the case against the rest of the suspects seemed to fall apart, as the Kentucky New Era newspaper reported on November 11th, 1967, Diaferio had been suspected of being the big-bosomed blonde spotted directing <laughs> traffic off the highway during the robbery. That's all they saw, huh? Now, are you ready for this? I'm ready. This is a different time, right? Yeah. In a dro- jaw-dropping example of legal work that would presumably not be permitted today. I'm certain it wouldn't be permitted today, not presumably. Diaferio was asked to wear a tight blue sweater and stand sideways in front of the witness stand. When eyewitness Angus Perry was asked if he was sure this was the woman he had seen that day, he said, well, might have been mistaken on his estimation in bus size. So they basically had her stand up and say, are these the tits you saw that day, sir? And he says, "Mm, I don't know if they were bigger or smaller, but I, I don't know. They wouldn't do that nowadays. If that's all you saw. The leading evidence is a pair of boobs. If that's all you saw. Uh, I don't think that would fit the uh, agenda of today's society at all. Well, Diaferio and Kelly were both acquitted of taking part in the robbery. I still really want to know, were the boobs too small or are they they too big? Mm. I mean, it's an important fact. Wait, well, what did you say? He said he what with the bus size? He said that they... uh, May have what? Mistaken in his estimation of bus size. Okay. Yeah, so it doesn't tell us which way, but what do you think? Big or small? He probably expected them to be bigger than they were. Oh, I think they were smaller because, I mean, for them to pick her up, just on that thought alone, they must have went out and got the biggest boobed blonde ever. And so she's probably standing up there with the... Anyway, this is irrelevant. No, that's what I'm saying. His, His description was probably bigger than she was. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, DeFerio and Kelly were both acquitted. Like I said, Kelly eventually went into witness um, the witness protection program after testifying against a mobster and died of natural causes in 2000. Wait, how do they know he died of natural causes if he was in the witness protection program? Because the witness protection program monitors you. Oh, really? That's the point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in a book titled My Life in the Mafia, notorious gangster Vincent, you want to know what his nickname is? Little little Tony. Nope. Fat Vinny. Fat. Oh, it's close. <laughs> claimed that Red Kelly had been responsible for planning the heist in return for 80 cents on the dollar when the money was laundered. Nice. But this was never proven. That's a pretty high amount. That's really it's high. It's a really good return. 
The Great Plymouth mail truck robbery remained the biggest cash robbery in U.S. history until it was surpassed by the Dunbar armored robbery in 1997. Ooh, tell me you're going to do that one next. I, maybe I will. To this day, the $1.5 million haul, or nearly $13 million in today's money, remains undiscovered by the authorities, and the mystery behind it has never been solved. That's my story. Amazing. Yeah. That was pretty good. That was a good one. So I see the mafia she connections. With the Stewart Museum heist. Yeah. The money is just completely gone. Just Nobody gone. knows where it went. I mean, I'm sure it was spent. Well, it stopped at multiple places, so maybe they took it to Fat Vinny's house and Little Tony's house and maybe they Jimmy the Fish it. and whatever. They did, but now the money's gone. No suspects. Case is still open, so I guess, you know, if they get any leads, they could try to go after somebody today, but... It's probably a little late. I'm feeling like those guys are probably not here anymore. Yeah. So what did we learn here? Criminals in Massachusetts like to pretend to be cops. Right. And don't carry your money in a mail truck. No. All right. That was dumb. It was. All right. Well, if you would like any more information on these cases, please make sure to follow us on social media at How Did We Miss That? And until next week, keep your head up and look out for each other. Thank you.